So last week, one of the moms here, in knowing that I was going to be speaking on Mother's Day, said, so what are you going to teach on Mother's Day? And just in playing with her, I said, well, I'm going to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> no, I'm not. But I would tell you honestly, the best gift that I can give to mothers here is the gift of solid biblical teaching. So that, oh good, women, say that again. I heard amen. All right. So that your children, your offspring, your family, those you influence, are influencers in the world. And as they hear solid biblical teaching and they carry it out, that's a great gift to give to all of mankind. So we will continue in the book of Genesis, although not on Sodom and Gomorrah today. I am out from under, obviously, the influence of my mother and father. Um, I better be at this age. And yet, um, when I have temptations placed in front of me, I still hear the echoes of their voices. When things that would influence me from the world, I still hear my mom pushing my buttons saying, do you really want to go there? And beyond that, even though I'm not under their influence any, anymore, even though I'm not under their watchful eye, I am forever under the watchful eye of God. And we forget that often. I want to refresh your memory on that before we launched back into Genesis today to remember the reason that we're doing all this studying, the reason that we're spending time digging into God's Word is because the bar that He set for us, His expectation, is enormously, eternally high. Look at these verses with me about how much He watches you. Job 34.21 For His eyes are upon the ways of man, and He sees all His steps. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Jeremiah 16, 17. My eyes are on... So last week, one of the moms here, in knowing that I was going to be speaking on Mother's Day, said, so what are you going to teach on Mother's Day? And just in playing with her, I said, well, I'm going to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> no, I'm not. But I would tell you honestly, the best gift that I can give to mothers here is the gift of solid biblical teaching. So that, oh good, women, say that again. I heard amen. <laughs> All right. So that your children, your offspring, your family, those you influence, are influencers in the world. And as they hear solid biblical teaching and they carry it out, that's a great gift to give to all of mankind. So we will continue in the book of Genesis, although not on Sodom and Gomorrah today. I am out from under, obviously, the influence of my mother and father. Um, I better be at this age. And yet, um, when I have temptations placed in front of me, I still hear the echoes of their voices. When things that would influence me from the world, I still hear my mom pushing my buttons saying, do you really want to go there? And beyond that, even though I'm not under their influence any, anymore, even though I'm not under their watchful eye, I am forever under the watchful eye of God. And we forget that often. I want to refresh your memory on that 
before we launched back into Genesis today to remember the reason that we're doing all this studying, the reason that we're spending time digging into God's Word is because the bar that He set for us, His expectation, is enormously, eternally high. Look at these verses with me about how much He watches you. Job 34.21 For His eyes are upon the ways of man, and He sees all His steps. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Jeremiah 16.17 My eyes are on all their ways, and they are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. Hosea 7.2 they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Hebrews 4.13 Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That's something you want to keep in your memory banks when you're dealing with an omniscient God. One who never forgets. Who sees every single thing you do. Jesus was having a conversation with some of His, uh, we, we won't call them friends, um, acquaintances, the Jewish leaders, and He was entering into a debate with them about who He was. Pick it up with me in John 8 on the screen. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, there it is. Remember I've told you, every time you see truly, truly, Jesus is saying, take it to the bank. You can bet on this. This is sure. Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to throw them at Jesus? Jesus knew what you're uncovering, the significance of who Abraham was. And he said to them, I am greater than Abram. I am greater than Abraham. Before Abram was born, I am the same I am that spoke on Mount Sinai. That's the same way it's phrased here. And they understood that he's picking up to say, I'm God. And so they got stones to chuck at him because they thought he was claiming to be God, which is what he was doing. Now with that in the back of your mind, we're going to review Abraham's journey. Look at this map with me up on the screen. We started out a couple weeks ago with Abram way down in the bottom of Iraq. Down at the bottom of the Euphrates River, which is still there today, called the Ur of the Chaldees. He traveled all the way to the north, to the bottom of Turkey, what we know to be today Turkey, in a country, in a little city called Haran. And he lived in Haran for 15 years. And God called him and said, Abram, come on out. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he left Haran at the very top of the map, And he traveled down into what we know today to be modern Israel. Canaan, the land of promise. It was known as the Canaanite region. Traveled all the way down into the bottom to Shechem. And there he built an altar. 
After he built an altar, a famine came. You learned that a couple weeks ago, that there was a famine in the land. He picked up everything he had, and he went down to Egypt. He traded in his wife to the king of Egypt to protect his life. He lived there for two years, got his wife back through God's intervention, and went all the way back to the promised land. And then last week you learned that at that point, Abram and his nephew Lot had such great possessions that they had to separate. And Lot went to live in a city called Sodom. And Abram stayed in the pasture area. And his flocks increased. And God blessed him greatly. I put a subtitle on this message for myself in my own Bible this week as I'm working through it. And I put it down as thinking God thoughts in the face of temptation. Because temptation faces us every day. How do we think God thoughts in the face of temptation? You're going to find out how as you learn more about Abram today in chapter 14. Now, I'm going to do something a little unusual with you that I haven't done before in the sense of reading an entire chapter, but I want you to stay with me on this, even though there's some names in here that's just going to throw you off and you're going to want to stare out the window. Try, try and stay with me on this. There's 24 verses here in chapter 14. And to get the context of everything that's going on, I want you to just... Track it as well as you can. So there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Some of them are NIV, New International Version. Some of them are NASB. That's the Bible I preach out of, New American Standard. So you can grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, take one with you today. Those are there for you. But it's also going to be up on the screen. Genesis 14 and verse 1. Here we go. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar... Arioch, king of Elisar, Cheddar, I'm going to call this guy Cheddar, okay? Because I can't really get his name down. Cheddar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. And they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemember, I should get an award for this, and Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim. And Moses gives us a little insight where that's at because at this time, the valley of Siddim was still a very beautiful area. So he puts it in parentheses and he says, that's the salt sea, the dead sea. Moses wants you to understand where that's at. Twelve years they had served Cheddar, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cheddar and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtoreth, Carnaim, and in Zuzum, in Ham. And in, this doesn't all like this, okay? Just these first few verses. And the Emmon in Shava, I won't even try that one. And the Horites in, the, in, the mount, in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Amephshat. That is Kadesh. This is the area where Abram is living. This is the southern area. And conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, this is where Lot's living now, and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out. And now we're out of the names. You can relax. And they arrayed for battle against them in the, valley, in the valley of Siddim, against Cheddar, king of Alam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, 
king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. On verse 13, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshel and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Cheddar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Ashel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Congratulations, you got through 24 verses. Don't let this be an excuse for your own Bible reading during the week, okay? But this is an important context to understand because these past weeks that we've studied seem to have absolutely no relation to what we just read. The connection is very thin between chapter 13 and chapter 14 until you read in that very first phrase, if you understand, in the days of Amraphel. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Genesis 14.1. If you don't know this, Shinar is Babylon, modern-day area of Baghdad. Babylon is a powerful force at this time. They're a world superpower. And so what we're looking at here is an event of international importance. This is not just a minor skirmish. This is the kings of nations coming in and sweeping through. Centuries before Abram was even born, the area that he's living in was conquered by the Babylonians. And Bab Babylon ruled over the Canaanites. They were... Uh, submissive to them, and for 12 years, they sent tribute to them. They sent money off to Babylon, and they got irritated with doing it. And so the five city-states that surrounded the Valley of Siddim, this beautiful area, what we know as Sodom and Gomorrah and Zor, those towns, 
They rebelled. They had kings who ruled over their cities. And they rebelled and said, we're not going to do this anymore. And this was a declaration of war. And so the kings from the east, a very powerful force, decided to sweep in. But rather than taking them head on, they flanked them. And they came around from the south. And they came from behind them. And along the way, they wiped out cities and villages as they moved up towards the valley of Siddim. Now verse 3 sums it up for us. It says, all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cheddar, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cheddar and the kings that were with him came. Now why do you need to know that? I told you that when we started the study in Genesis that it would be a defense for why you believe what you believe. Because in the face of a society who says, you can't trust this, it's not accurate. You continue to hear those in academia who do research and study take on passages of Scripture and say, don't trust that. It's not accurate historically. Here's a quote that came from Princeton back in the 1970s. There is no known historical period in which a king of Elam was able to enlist a Hittite king, a Hurrian king, and a Mesopotamian king as vassal allies in a war against Canaanite cities. John Van Cedars, a professor. Now, he took on this passage, even though he's a professor of religion, to say, historically, you can't trust this. It's just allegory. He's right. If you don't believe the Word of God, you can't trust it. But if you believe the Word of God, you believe it to be authenticated and true, you're always wondering how is God going to come against this force of academia continuing to assault it and saying, we've done the research and it's not there. You can't back it up. Until eight years ago when a Babylonian inscription was found and this Babylonian inscription indeed listed the names of each of these kings and the campaign that they went on all the way through the Canaanite cities. So much so that one of them actually listed a Canaanite whom they had made a contract with along the way by the name of Ebramau, translated Abraham. Scripture continues to be authenticated, so when you see in the news, you know, it's just, it's just can't be trusted. God continues to give little bits and pieces to reinforce why we believe what we believe. You don't just have to take it on blind faith. Now, the armies of the cities are completely de uh, devastated in this story that we've just read by the invading kings. So much so that these people didn't even know their own lands. If you read that part about the tar pits and they ran from the battle and they fell into the tar pits, they were destroyed as a people in Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroyed them as a city because they didn't even know their own land. Ezekiel gives us some insight as to why their lifestyle didn't allow them to even know the territory where they lived because they were so affluent. Look at what Ezekiel says about them. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. He's talking about a sister nation. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. They were so affluent in Sodom 
They had so much prosperity that they were not a fighting force. They were wimpy. And so when the battle lines were drawn, they ran. And in the midst of it, God allowed Lot to be captured. Verse 12, They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. This revolt brought the, brought the vengeance of Cheddar and this powerful nation. If you've watched the History Channel, if you watched any of the war movies reenacted from those days where men stand with their shields and they bring their swords up and they pound it against it by the thousands trying to make this roar sound, it came from the Babylonians. Can you imagine how intimidating that was? If you've lived in comfort and ease all your life in this little city called Sodom, and your king tells you to go out on the battle line, and you see thousands of warriors with their shields, and they're banging it because they're coming to get you. No wonder they ran and fell in the tar pits. It was an intimidating scene. Chapter 13, we learned last week that Lot left Abram and went to live in Sodom. He was living in Sodom when he was taken. What happened? Lot gave in to temptation. He lived in Egypt with his uncle Abram for a little while. He saw the good things of the big city life, came back, had a fight with his uncle. His uncle said, why don't you just leave this area, go any place you want. He decided to go to another big city, Sodom. And now he's living in the midst of corruption. Now up to this point, Abram is not involved in this battle at all and has no interest in this. Remember, he's the one that said, I don't want any strife. He's in his 80s. And up till this point, sweeping past Abram's tent is this international event. And he can see it going on because he could even see Sodom from where he lived. But he had no interest in this until they took his nephew. Now, Shinar, I told you, is represented here in Scripture, is the city of Babylon, a powerful country. Now look how Abram responds to the force from a powerful country. Verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshel and brother of Anar. And these were allies with Abram, meaning they had made a covenant with him, an agreement. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318. You get an idea of the scope of the blessing that God's beginning to pour out on Abram? That he can even draw out of his own household 318 men? Warriors? That means how many more were children? How many more were the wives of these 318 men who were not called out? Remember he left the Ur of the Chaldees with only about 30 people? And now he's got nearly 1,000 people living within his business his shepherding business, 318 men. And what does it say next? And went in pursuit as far as Dan. That is a very bold follower of God. 318 men going off to chase the kings of the east with no thought of his personal welfare or being. He's in his 80s. He's chasing four kings and their armies who don't even know he's coming. They've just swept through the Middle East and decimated all of these little 
small nations, taking away with them slaves, taking away all their possessions, and they're traveling back to Babylon. Three things I want you to pull out of that first, first portion so far. Abram did not hesitate to go into battle with an army bigger than his. Armies bigger than his, but he feels this compulsion to act on behalf of his family love, his love for his family member. And note that the last time that Abram and Lot had connection with each other, they had been fighting. As a family member, he did not wait for Lot to apologize or to make his decision saying, Uncle Abram, will you come rescue me? But rather, he responded as soon as he heard that Lot had been taken, taking 318 of his own men. Abram treated his nephew with love. A loving response. And here's what they do. They jump on their camels, their horses, whatever they had, and they went 120 miles to the north, arriving to the valley at nighttime. His love and his respect was so strong for his God that he responded without thought of personal well-being. He had every reason in the book to let Lot pay stupid tax because stupid tax is paid by people who make stupid decisions. And Lot had made a stupid decision. But Abram didn't let stupid tax, stupid decisions get in his way. He responded with godly love. He did not fight, as you're about to find out, from a selfish motive to get personal gain. Do you think that this was a teachable moment when he rescued his nephew and brought him back? Do you think that as they rode along, coming back to the land after he rescued him, that he had an opportunity to build into his life and say, let's have a talk, Lot, about the decisions you made that brought you to this point. How many days does it take on a horse to travel 120 miles? They had a lot of time to talk. Do you think that maybe Lot made some decisions at that point? Oh, Uncle Abram, you're right. I should not have been living in that city among those people. You know, when we get back, I'm going to fix that. What about all the inhabitants of the conquered cities? Did you ever stop to think about that, if you're familiar with this story at all? Thousands of people had been hauled away as slaves. These violent kings are taking them back to Babylon to serve in God knows what capacity. And arriving in the middle of the night, is this man of God with a force of 300 people and he frees them all and leads them back. How might that have impacted their life to say, wow, this guy's got something I don't have. When we get back, I almost was a slave. I'm going to fix this. Stop and think about the things that are going on underneath the scenes. Verse 17, Then after his return from the defeat of Cheddar, we don't get hardly any detail at all, just that Abram defeated him. Then after his return from the defeat of Cheddar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, this is the only place in all of the Scriptures other than once in the book of Psalms 
you will see this phrase used, God Most High, El Elyam. And Abram uses it, and Melchizedek uses it. God Most High. El Elyam, possessor of heaven and earth. Why do you need to know that? Possessor is only used here in all of Scripture. Kana. It means one who has title. If you own your car and you have a little green title that goes along with it that has your name on it, it says you are the kana of that car. This is saying God is the possessor. God has title to everything. The possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, Elayon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Let me deviate for just a minute because this passage right here, he gave him a tenth of all, is used by many people to support the tithe and why we tithe. You will find me to not be a person who supports the tithe under the sense of the law. The tithe is something that was given to a law to the Jewish people and was done away with when the law was done away. Does that mean we don't give? No, absolutely not. Our instructions on how to give to God are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Giving from a joyful heart. In the first day of the week, gather what you're going to give at the church and give it. But these illustrations about the tithe, don't let everybody, anybody ever teach you that the tithe is still in effect. This was a law given specifically to the Jewish people. But God still wants us to give and obviously support His work. So, that's just a DVS, that's just for free. Okay, Melchizedek. What does he do when he comes? Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, and he proclaims this. God Most High delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, Melchizedek, we have no background on. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he's going. There's an old tradition among the Jewish people that says that Melchizedek was actually Shem, the descendant of Noah. I can't back that up. I don't know. Among the Jewish rabbis, they're saying that Shem was the king of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, still living at that time, and he was in this area. We don't know that for sure. Abram recognized him as a very godly man and gave him a tithe, a tenth of all the spoils. How did Melchizedek use that? We don't know. We don't know where Melchizedek went to next. All we know is that he did this as a godly man, much like godly people come into your life. He came in and what did he do? He reminded Abram, God Most High delivered your enemies into your hands. You didn't do it, Abram. You didn't succeed. God succeeded through you. And how does Abram respond? He gives back. Now look at the contrast as we wrap this up in verse 21. The contrast of the king of Sodom. I want to give you some background information so you really understand this. Verse 21, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, El Elayam, he's using that same phrase again, possessor, Kana, he's reiterating the things he just heard from Melchizedek. I have sworn to the Lord Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread 
or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Ashel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. He recognized that his three friends had a rightful share to the spoils. How did he know that? Let me give you some background on this. What the king of Sodom had just offered to do was to give to Abram the things that already belonged to him. Under the law of Hammurabi, the Babylonian king who ruled over this territory, the code of Hammurabi, anybody who conquered a city or conquered a nation had the right to all the peoples and all the spoils. That's very ironic that Abram had just defeated Hammurabi and took all the spoils back. And so this king is trying to ask him to keep the things that are already his. By law, Abram can keep everything that is here. They are not the king of Sodom's to give. They are Abram's to keep. They belong to him. Abram lived with God's law long before God's law was written. Let me explain that to you. He would not keep these things. How do you know when you're walking with God? How do you know when you've made the right decision? How do you know when you're Abram that you shouldn't have taken these things? Abram had God's word written on his heart. God said, I will place my law on your heart so that you will understand the things that you are supposed to do and not do. We just talked in the very beginning of this message about temptations. You don't need your mom and dad, your God, writing things down because it's already there. The guidelines are there. How you respond to it is up to you. Let me emphasize that for you as you look at these verses. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart. Psalms 48. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 2 Corinthians 3.3 Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Why would it have been wrong for Abram to take all those spoils for himself. Think about what he's walking away from. This is a fortune. These kings from the east, from Babylon, did not come all the way on this campaign to walk away with a nickel or a quarter in their pocket. This is gold and silver and enormous wealth. This is slave labor. And Abram's stepping away from saying, I don't need that wealth. The wealth that I will have will come from Cana, the possessor of heaven and earth. I don't need worldly gain when El Elyam 
is the one blessing me. So I will not accept even a shoelace, king of Sodom, from your shoe. Because everything that I have is going to come from God, not from worldly gain. Verse 22. I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. If you happen to have the King James Version, it might say, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord. If you've watched a courtroom scene and an attorney or a bailiff in a court stands before a defendant, or someone who is about to give testimony, they ask them to place their hand on the Bible, raise their right hand, and say, I swear that what I'm about to say is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. This is where it originates from. What Abram is saying, I lift up my hand unto God, and I swear, God, if you will give me victory, I will not take any of this fortune for myself. And Abram is honoring this promise to God, saying, I want none of this. He determined before he got in the car to drive to the bar. He determined before he got in the car to drive to the party. I swear to you, God, I'm going to do everything I can to honor you. And God gave him single-minded victory. You're watching the maturing of a believer in these last few weeks. And he's really rising to the occasion here. This is why the Jewish people got so irritated with Jesus when he said, before Abram, I am. I am greater than Abram. Because they revered him so highly for the godly decisions that he made. And Jesus is saying, you see nothing. It's me. And my laws, they're written on your heart. You're getting down to some really tough choice moments with these kind of verses here. Who of you have walked away from a fortune to honor God? I haven't had to do it. I can't imagine the temptation. Oh man, God said he's going to bless me and make me a great nation. Maybe this is how he's going to do it. I know I promised that, God, but that was before I left on battle and I saw all the gold I was going to get. Look at all this wealth. God, this must be the way you were really going to bless me. No, I swear to God, I will not take a shoelace. This is a maturing believer. Now, I told you in the very beginning of this message that God watches everything that you do. I'm going to give you the last half of a verse that I intentionally left out until here at the end. And it's back at Ezekiel. We were reading about Ezekiel's observation of how lazy the people of Sodom were. Look at the last half of the verse. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I what? When I saw it. 
God sees everything and there are repercussions for the way we treat his word and our promises to him and our lifestyle choices and he does not forget. He's omniscient. That's not the kind of God I want to break my oath on. These are the things we're learning about God's nature and character. He will deliver us when we trust him and we go boldly forth for him. But you turn your back on him. That's an abomination that the people of Sodom committed. They obviously did it over years and years and years. But God said, I removed them when I saw it. It wasn't by accident. I ask you to challenge yourself this week to question the decisions that you're making every day in business, hour after hour. Are they God-honoring decisions? Are they self-honoring decisions? What kind of commitments have you made before God? And are you honoring those commitments? Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing truth through your word and for giving us understanding. And God, I ask right now that you just open our hearts wide open, that the, maybe even some of the things that we've just read now didn't make a whole lot of sense, but through your spirit, you would use them and apply them to our week, to our decisions, maybe even three, four days from now, Father, when we're looking at a situation that is very tempting and we're not sure which way to go. Help us to lean into the way you would go, Father. Help us to honor you in everything that we do so that we can stand before the Son and he can say, well done, faithful servant. God, that's what we want to hear. We want to honor you. I ask that you help my brothers and sisters in this room as well as myself to go boldly before you this week and to represent your kingdom well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.